Seismic shifts have hit our society, leaving people unmoored from truth and unsettled in their faith. The question asked by David in Psalm 11.3 resonates among many today. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In our present cultural environment, it's imperative for followers of Christ to be convictional, courageous, and compassionate. We must know what we believe, why we believe it, and how we can communicate it to others. In short, we must be unshaken in our faith, Psalm 62.2, and unashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. Grounded in truth and lived out in God's grace, our faith in Christ will change our own lives and ultimately help transform a broken world. Welcome to On Mission, the preaching ministry of Edgewood Baptist Church in Rock Island. When we gather together, we meet on 38th Street, and when we're scattered, we strive to live on mission all over the Quad Cities area. Listen now to part two of a message called, Your Identity is Essential. Here's our main idea. Our world teaches that people can be whoever they identify themselves to be. The Word of God teaches you are who God says you are. Parents, I want to give you a heads up that parts of the sermon may not be appropriate for younger children as we'll be learning about sexuality and gender matters. John Stone Street offers this commentary. Our real cultural crisis is a catastrophic, culture-wide loss of meaning. Now we are living with the existential results This is what we have now of a culture untethered from God and therefore untethered from any fixed reference point for truth, morality, here's the word, identity and meaning. By turning identity into a self-made sort of thing, into whoever we want to be or whoever we say that we are or feel that we are, well, that's no grounding for dignity and value. Since we must always begin At the beginning, we turn again to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. This is the fixed reference point that you and I must be tethered to. And I'm drawing some insight from a couple messages I preached a year ago from a series we called Back to the Beginning, where we walk through the first three chapters of Genesis, verse by verse. If you want to do a deeper dive on this topic, you could go to our website or our app and read or listen or uh, watch the sermon called Gender Matters, where we took an entire message and focused on that. That was preached this past November. For our purposes today, open up your Bibles to Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Would you notice how this begins? Then God said. It's as if there's this solemn pause after God formed and filled the earth. You can read about that in the verses that come right before this. And as God is considering creating man and woman, you get the sense that there's anticipation building and we get ready to hear what God is going to say next. Let us make man. That phrase, let us, is an emphatic imperative. It can be translated as, we will. 
It's like God is consulting within himself before creating man. Now, up until this point, God's speaking has been intentionally measured. You see this phrase, let there be, and there was. With the creation of man, oh, it becomes more intimate, magnified. The plural use of us is early evidence for the Trinity, Trinity, as is the Hebrew name Elohim, which is in the plural. The word said is singular, signifying that there is plurality within oneness. One pastor captures it well. God, who is one, communes with himself, the Father to the Son, the Son to the Spirit, the Spirit to the Father, and in perfect agreement, Adam and Eve were created. By the way, in November, we're going to be preaching a series on who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. Now, the word make means to accomplish or complete. It referred to an activity with a distinct purpose or goal in mind. The word for man, Adam, Adam. That's the generic term for mankind, but it's also the proper name, Adam, Adam, which refers to the first created male. Humans were the last of God's created creatures. They're the crowning achievement of creation. So consider animals. They're made according to their kinds. Humans, well, they're in a class way above all other creation. We are the crescendo of God's creative genius. And in addition, the creation of man and woman is narrated with greater detail in Genesis chapter two. No other part of creation is given this much attention. Okay, look now at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In the Hebrew, there's 12 words arranged in three lines, each with its own poetic repetition and cadence. Well, just as a poem is often used to accentuate something with carefully chosen words and images, so here, God celebrates with superlative language how men and women are created in his image. And they find their identity in him. You have been made in the image of God. And therefore, you have dignity, you have value, and you have worth because of who you are, or more accurately, whose you are. Some of you don't really believe that, but you matter because you have been made by the maker. The word so connects us to verse 26. So look again how it begins. So God created. The word so expresses agreement or confirmation. Would you observe three times the word created is used, thus emphasizing the uniqueness of God creating mankind as male and female. From this point on, humanity is divided into two groups, male and female. In addition, the fact that we are made in God's image is stated twice for emphasis. Let's ponder that phrase, male and female. He created them. In Hebrew, it literally reads like this, as male and female, 
created he them. Males and females are equal, but not identical because their biological sex is separate and distinct. God created males and females on purpose with different purposes. We've, made, we've been made differently by design with distinct capacities and roles to fulfill the divine mandate to serve as stewards of the earth. There are at least three primary characteristics which distinguish males from females. First of all, different reproductive organs. Secondly, distinctive external anatomy. And thirdly, the presence or absence of a Y chromosome. So gender is designed by the grand designer at conception. From our DNA to our reproductive organs, as such, God is the creator and the giver of gender. Males and females do not have interchangeable anatomy, and those differences are not inconsequential. Both the Bible and biology makes this clear. This week, I read an insightful post called Does God Care About Gender Identity, written by Colin Hansen and Sam Ferguson. It's been dubbed the gender revolution. You see it all around. Gender identity has been disconnected from biology. What you feel about your body matters more than what you can see and touch. Children who are encouraged to believe they were born into the wrong gendered body now expect and even demand support from parents and other authorities as they seek life-altering drugs and surgeries to confirm the gender with which they identify. The phrase, according to its kinds or according to their kinds, is used 10 times in Genesis 1 to indicate there are separate species and genders which are distinct and different. Clearly, God established categories of creation. In addition, the word separate is used five times in the first chapter, and it means to set apart. It's a word of distinction, of differentiation, So the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 shows how God separated many things. Think with me. He separated light from darkness, the waters from above, from the waters below. He separated the dry land from the waters below. He separated the day from the night, and he separated humankind into two biological sexes. God's way is always best. And contrary to the thinking in our current culture, binary is not bad. It's beautiful. Gender is not just a social construct or something one chooses as their identity. Oh, consider with me the beauty of Psalm 139. For you form my inward parts. You did it, God. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, My soul knows it very well. Let me say it another way. Your biological sex and gender are fixed and finite. They're not fluid. 
So your identity is wrapped up in being an image bearer of God. You are who God says you are. You are not who you identify as. You are not the result of some coincidental cosmic accident, nor have you somehow evolved from a single-celled organism over the space of millions of years. No, you are more than just matter, and you matter greatly to the Almighty. And since you are the product of divine design, you have been created with dignity, with value, with worth and purpose. And so as humans, our worth and our identity is intrinsic. Why? Because we've been created in the image and likeness of God to display his character. We don't have to work to establish our worth. We are already worthy because of who made us. According to Isaiah 43, 7, the main reason we've been created is to show forth God's glory. You're like, why am I here? Why do I exist? Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, here it is, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let's hit it again. Our world teaches that people can be whoever they identify themselves to be. The word of God teaches you are who God says you are. Christopher Yuan was a practicing homosexual for many years, and his mom prayed faithfully for him. After serving in prison and going through a bout of drugs, he fell to his knees and repented of his sins. And he now walks with Jesus and he teaches on this topic. Christopher Yuan has a, a, a new project out. It's called the Holy Sexuality Project. Consider what he says. The world is shouting at your kids these days, telling them any and all types of sexuality should be accepted, even celebrated. But my identity should not be defined by my sexuality. Sexuality is not who we are, it's what we feel and do. It describes our experience, get this, but not our essence. My identity should not be grounded in my desires. My identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. By the way, this fall, Pastor Chris will be taking our students through this material on Sunday mornings. We also have copies of Yuan's book available in our resource center. In order to go deeper this week, many of us are in growth groups. There's groups meeting right now. There'll be more groups meeting the next hour. Um, Beth and I lead a group during the week, and we're going through the same material, the same topics in our group so that we can take the sermon and live it out, flesh it out in our world. Uh, one of the statements our groups will be studying this week goes like this. What you do doesn't determine who you are. Who you are determines what you do. And the challenge there is for us to live out who God has made us to be. Friends, when we repent and receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, Jesus takes our rottenness and transfers to us his righteousness. We have been reconciled, ransomed, 
and redeemed. And in the process, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, we become someone we have never been before. This is beautiful. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 3.18 teaches we can be transformed today as we gaze upon the glory of God. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let me suggest four applications. Number one, if you're confused about your gender, or you're living in a state of sexual brokenness, remember Jesus gave his body to recover and restore those who feel alienated from their bodies. After describing a long list of sins, 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, and such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The gospel changes everything, and the gospel can change you. Number two, Edgewood is a hospital for hurting sinners. People might label us a certain way, give us a certain color on the stoplight, because we strive to speak the truth about sin, but we also speak the truth about our Savior who gave his life for sinners like me and sinners like you. So when you confess Christ, he brings you into the body of Christ, the church. I love what a 10-year-old put on her card last week. There's cards in front of you, and and on occasion, people will write notes that they want the staff to know, and most of those are encouraging, not always. But this one from a 10-year-old, oh, I treasure this. Listen to what she said. Quote, if we did not have a church, then we would not learn about God. We would not know who he even is. So we need a church to learn about Jesus and God. (laughs) I love that. Reminded me of a podcast I listened to this week. It had a very good title. When having a biblical worldview is lonely. And my guess it's lonely where you live. Now maybe in your family everybody's following Christ, but in a lot of families that's not the case. Or you're with extended family and you're the outlier. You're the hater. You're the person that doesn't include others because you're standing on biblical convictions. Think of our students, how lonely that must be. That's why we need the church. That's why it's good for us to gather and hear God's perspective on what God has to say about topics that our culture is just messing up. We need each other, church. I appreciated one commentator's insight, quote, our new fluid selves have yielded only homelessness in existence without roots in either place or person. There's a place for you in this place. 
Number three, brothers and sisters, we must be a church that speaks truthfully while tenderly offering hope and healing to those who've been talked into pursuing their identity apart from Christ. I think we're going to see many who are going to be living with regret for decisions that they've made, and they don't know where to turn. They need redemption and restoration in Jesus Christ. And in the process, as Elisa Childers says, let's remember as we pursue Christ to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and thick skin. (laughs) Number four, find your identity as an image bearer of God and as one who's been redeemed by the Savior. At the heart of what happens when you become a Christian, get this, you receive a new identity. So in Jesus, we don't lose our true selves. We become our true selves only in him. Your true identity is ultimately based on what God has done for you. One author says it like this, Christian identity is received. It's not achieved. Taking enormous pressure off us to perform and merit our affirmation. I don't know if you're like this, but I can remember books sometimes that go back 20, 30 years. I don't remember everything in them, but the book was so meaningful that the message is in my mind. That happened to me with a book I read some 30 years ago. It's written by David Needham. Here's the title, Birthright. Christian, do you know who you are? And I went back and pondered his premise. Here it is. A Christian is not simply a person who gets forgiveness, who gets to go to heaven, who gets the Holy Spirit, who gets a new nature. Mark this. A Christian is a person who's become someone he was not before. A Christian, in terms of his deepest, here's the word, here's our topic, in terms of his deepest identity, is a saint, a born child of God, a divine masterpiece, a child of light, a citizen of heaven. I had the joy Friday night of speaking at Celebrate Recovery. After the message, a man wanted to speak with me, and I took him into the kitchen, and I talked to him, and I reviewed the gospel with him, and I said, are you ready to repent of your sins and surrender yourself to Jesus? He said, yes. And standing by the the sinks in that part of the kitchen, he bowed his head and prayed to receive Christ. When he was done, I told him, you are now a new Christian. You are a new creation. That night was his spiritual birthday. Let's go back to Martin Luther. Before his conversion, he was tormented by the guilt of his iniquity. Some of you are living there even today. You're just filled with guilt and shame. I grew up in an environment like that. The church that I was part of, man, there was so much guilt and so much shame. Well, Martin Luther, his sins were always before him, and it paralyzed him. It sucked the joy out of his life. While reading the book of Romans, it all clicked for him. And when he repented and received the free gift of salvation by God's grace, he said he felt before like he was a slave to sin and he didn't know how to break free from it. After he was saved by God's grace, he renamed himself. He gave himself a different name. 
Martin Eleutheros, which means in the Greek, Martin the Free. Martin the Free. Friend, make sure to find your identity as an image bearer of God and as one who has been redeemed by the Savior. At the heart of what happens when you become a Christian is that you receive a new identity. In Jesus, we do not lose our true selves, but we become our true selves, only in Him. Your true identity is ultimately based on what God has done for you. Thanks for joining us for On Mission. If you'd like to listen to this message again, you can now download episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify by going to edgewoodbaptist.net. We'd love to have you as a guest at one of our three weekend services, Saturday at 5 or Sunday at 9 or 1045. My name is Matt Williams, and I'm a member of Edgewood. Ethan Curry, also an Edgewood member, is serving as the producer of this program. We look forward to connecting with you again next weekend as we learn more about how to live on mission. Until then, go deepen God's Word and keep applying it to your world. On Mission is furnished by Edgewood Baptist in Rock Island, Illinois.